From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome. We here at the Wealth DNA Radio Show are honored that you're joining us today. We sure hope all the mothers in the U.S. had a wonderful uh, holiday, and it was, uh, this is interesting, how the heck can I get uh, sharing, hearing the t- show twice when I have it muted? But anyway, I am hearing the show twice. Well, that's interesting. I think we, I think I have that resolved. But uh, it was Mother's Day yesterday in the U.S., and hopefully, all, again, all of you mothers had a wonderful uh, Mother's Day. It's probably one of the most important holidays, regardless of our faith, nationality, and education. We all have a mother, and without our mothers, we couldn't become wealthy, since we wouldn't be here. Now, whether you're on the U.S. East, ooh, let's try it again. U.S. West Coast, that's on the left side, uh, or in Arizona where I am, and you're sipping a cup of coffee. The U.S. Central Time Zone, where our guest is, you're wrapping up the morning. You're in Europe, spending and kind of ending your work day. You've just spent a whole day working. You're somewhere in between, or you're listening to the archive of the show. I know you'll be glad you joined us for this hour. Now, if you're listening to the archive in, let's say, 2020 or later, you'll be able to look back and see how the show might have helped you with your investment decisions by listening live in May of 2015. Now, I suspect you'll also become a regular listener as a result. Now, on the Wealth DNA Radio Show, we focus on the fundamentals of investing and providing great ideas for building your wealth. Today, we'll focus on the economy, where we've been, where we're going, and how you should position your portfolio. Now, regular listeners know that we like to start each show with a uh, sharing a quote, or sometimes even two, and we'll do two today, two different ones. Both tie in, tie in with our topic. Our guest doesn't know what those are, so uh, he may be surprised. Uh, first is, a baby has brains, but it doesn't know much. Experience is the only thing that brings knowledge, and the longer you're on this earth, the more experience you're sure to get. Quote is from L. Frank Baum, the author, of course, of the wonderful Wizard of Oz. The second quote, which I'm sure our guest will like, economics is everywhere. And understanding economics can help you make better decisions and lead a happier life. That's our mission, isn't it? That quote is from Tyler Cowen, and I'll spell that last name, C-O-W-E-N, not spelled kind of the traditional Cowen um, spelling, so C-O-W-E-N. Let me repeat that one. Economics is everywhere, and understanding economics can help you make better decisions and lead a happier life. Today is Monday, uh, May 11th. 2015. It is 9.03 a.m. in Arizona, 11.03 a.m. in the central time zone where our guest is. It's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a great one, especially for you mothers listening. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Rod Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. If you didn't receive a reminder of the show, you should connect with us on Twitter or Facebook, where we post reminders. Just connect with The Ronald, put together as a single word. And I'd like to thank our sponsor today, of course, BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, for helping us put together and share this information with you. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you happen to miss a show, you can find them on the archives. Just go to wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archive. Incidentally, we put up a new version of the website recently, and I'm still having a little difficulty finding some of the archive shows, but they are there. We'll keep improving the site for you. 
We welcome your comments and questions during the show. Now, I recommend using the chat window, and there's a chat window below the radio player. If you're on the Internet, just scroll down. Uh, you can also call in, and our producer share your question or comment, or maybe put you on air, 917-388-4162, which is also shown at the top of the Internet screen. Now, since our last show, the U- U.S. equity markets bounced around a little after hitting a record high and ended up just about where they started. Today, they're off to a slightly negative start. Asia was up. Europe, which just closed, was down, and Brazil is down slightly. It's probably one of the lightest drops in Brazil in a long time. They've had a pretty rough go of it. Our guest today to discuss escaping Oz is Jim Mascara, a uh, principal at Sentinel Consulting, and we'll make sure you get that spelled later on which uh, specialize in business restructuring and capital acquisition. He also operates an economic and financial website called The Sentinel. Jim is a frequent contributor of financial and economic articles. I've seen a number of his and wrote the recent book, Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. Let's give a warm radio welcome to Jim Mascara. Welcome, Jim, and thank you for joining us today. Ron, thanks for having me on the show today. And I gave a brief overview of your, your background. How do you introduce yourself at a cocktail party? Well, my principal business is Sentinel Consulting, and that's focused run on uh, small to mid-sized businesses, typically uh, a lot of businesses these days in that uh, size range. Uh, will find themselves challenged to achieve financing through the regular commercial banking sector. And so what Sentinel Consulting does is it allows them, uh, if they're unsuccessful in that regard, to uh, acquire sources of financing in in what I'll call a a secondary or alternative market. Uh, We also work with uh, small businesses that run into uh, cash flow issues that may require debt restructuring, and perhaps they're facing uh, civil litigation as a a result of uh, some debt problems. So a lot of the practices uh, around small to mid-sized businesses, helping them acquire cash or helping them restructure debt. Hmm. Okay. Now, I've got a you know, some you know, basic bio questions I need to clear up, probably more for my purpose than for our listeners. You have a degree in industrial engineering, correct? That's correct. I have actually a bachelor's and a master's degree in industrial engineering. Hmm. I, I have a bachelor's in industrial engineering as well. Now, you have a degree in operations research, correct, or a specialization? Yeah, the specialization for my uh, master's thesis was actually in operations research, which uh, if, if you if you go back to you know the fundamentals of, of IE, what we call in industrial engineering, operations mm-hmm. research was really like the mathematical application of uh, things to solve business problems. And so my, my master's thesis was actually modeling a, a surgical environment in a hospital. Hmm. Yeah, that's my background as well. Now, your specialty is is now helping people understand economics and finance and understanding current current events through that lens, correct? That's correct. Uh, That sounds like me, too. Now, your consulting practice, though, is focused kind of on business turnaround and and capital acquisition, those kinds of things, right? That's right. So so the the Sentinel Consulting, again, is focused on the small to mid-sized businesses, the, uh, the, the Sentinel, uh, and then, of course, the, the, the books that I've written uh, tend to focus a little bit more on the individuals. Uh, I've expanded the, the second book, my, my most recent Escaping Oz book, to kind of talk a little bit more on, uh, about the economy at large and some of the things that we need to do collectively to, to correct some of these ills that we have. Okay, so uh, since it was uh, Mother's Day in the U.S. yesterday, I have one more key question on your background, so I'm getting a little bit worried here. Was your mother's name Helen? No, uh, her, her name is actually Marcella. 
that's good news. I was starting to worry that I was interviewing myself, and uh, it is never fun interviewing myself because of so many similarities, but uh, uh, I thought that was fascinating. I just want to make sure I wasn't doing that, so I really appreciate that. Now, putting aside all that seriousness for just a moment longer, it looks like you're based in what I would it looks like the ultimate Bible battle. I looked at a map there in the area where you are, and I see towns and cities around you like St. Peter's, St. Charles, St. Anne, St. John, and, of course, St. Louis. Uh, what is this? I thought the Bible Belt was further south. Yeah, and I think characteristically you might might suggest that. Uh, you know, St. Louis has a lot of uh, French traditions about it, uh, and, and within the, the, the St. Louis metropolitan area, you probably will find a, a fairly large concentration of, of Catholic schools. So the, the archdiocese is actually a, a, was actually at one point in time much broader and, and far-reaching uh, than, than it is today. But, yeah, I mean, it certainly has uh, some, some religious overtones. Yeah, I've never known that area very well. I've, of course, flown through there in the old days uh, an awful lot when, when you had a uh, major uh, major hub there for uh, TWA. Of course, uh, some of our listeners may not remember TWA, but that's another story. Tell us a little bit about the website, uh, www.thesentinel.biz. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, the Sentinel.biz uh, is, is a website that's really dedicated to uh, the economy and the financial markets. Uh, it, uh, some of the principles that you will see in my Escaping Oz books uh, or, originated in that uh, uh, the Sentinel website. Um, a few years ago, I had a, um, a publication, a monthly publication, that was called the Sentinel Financial Report. Um, periodically, I will have other content there. Like in 2014, I, I published... Um, an investor guide, if you will, uh, for individual investors, but also for small business owners, kind of what to look out for in the year 2014. So occasionally I'll publish some content uh, for purchase. Uh, it also has a, a what I'll call a loose membership structure. There's there's a lot of free content that's available for readers, um, but there's also some membership content as well, but the membership is, is essentially free. Um, hmm. Also link in a lot of articles that I publish today for uh, other online publications. Uh, some of your readers may be familiar with uh, Seeking Alpha. I, I do some articles for them. Yes. Daily Reckoning. And again, there's a number of other outlets that I, for whom I write. Yeah, Seeking Alpha is where, where I had seen some of your articles along the way and then recognized the name. Uh, so primarily membership-based, what you're saying, it really is if I sign up, it's, 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 it's pretty close to getting me into a membership. Yeah, and again, the the membership, I have some content that serves a little more exclusively for members. Mm -hmm. Again, the membership is free, but uh, really anybody that wants to go to the site and just derive the content that's there natively for free uh, has plenty of access. Now, let me make sure I, I share that website exactly since I think it was in our first announcement we had it misspelled, or I had it misspelled, to be true here. It's www.thesentinel, and that's spelled T-H-E-S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L dot biz, correct? Correct. B-I-Z, of course, for biz, if some people aren't familiar with that, that ending. We also have one of our domains with a biz ending. Okay, before we dig into specifics, would you share with our listeners how they'd contact you, learn more about Escaping Oz and the Sentinel? And I think I shared one of those websites. Are there some other ones you'd want to share? Yeah, so the uh, the website for the book uh, is www.escapingoz, so E-S-C-A-P-I-N-G-O-Z O-Z dot com. And um, that, again, has a lot of information about uh, the, the two Escaping Oz books. Uh, my small business capital acquisition and debt restructuring practice is located at sentinelconsulting.biz, so S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L, and then consulting, and then .biz. 
Okay, good good point. I almost forgot about that one. So as you mentioned, you've actually written two books. Both of them have the main title of Escaping Oz. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you started that first book, including its full name, and when that was. You know, it's interesting, Ron, but probably one of the more challenging things about writing a book is actually coming up with a title. I mean, I, I had yeah, all this, sure. and, I, and I developed it, and I thought, okay, well, you know, what, what should this title be? And I, I wanted to try to create uh, something that was very readable for the average reader, and and because we we know that you know economics, the financial markets can be somewhat of an esoteric topic. It's it's certainly nothing sexy. It's not as interesting to read as you know as Fifty Shades of Grey, and and I and I understand that. Um, so we have to wrap something around it to probably attract a, a reader that may see something regarding the financial markets and think, well, I don't necessarily want to get into that. Even though, as you mentioned in, in your in your intro to the show. You know, economics is a is a very important topic for everybody. So, I thought, well, the the Wizard of Oz is a story that uh, I think most people in this country would certainly sure. have some familiarity with, and so I, it's it's very lightly woven into the into the uh, the book. It's not a real strong tie, but there there are some themes that I that I try to bring up, and probably the most salient theme is the theme of the wizard. Um, so when I when I first released the print book uh, in late 2010, and I released the the ebook version in, in, in early 2011, uh, I wanted to talk about you know, some of the fundamentals surrounding the financial crisis of 2008. So that crisis was at that point two two and a half years behind us. Um, I didn't think at the time, and I still don't, that the fundamentals uh, are well understood. So it's something to again put take a normally esoteric topic and put it and develop it into something that is becomes much more readable and understandable and and really get to the fundamentals of the problem. Okay, we obviously can't cover all of those fundamentals and 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 they are important to understand where we are still uh because they haven't all gone away. Uh some of our listeners already know they can't blame me for that great recession since I didn't live in the US. I didn't own any real estate during the boom. Who is guilty and who who are some are, who are some of the guilty parties in that uh housing and banking crisis? Well, you know, guilt is probably somewhat of a pejorative term, and, and so I, I tried to stay away from that that okay. uh, that definition, if you will, within the book. But it, you really have to follow the progression of events, and, and, and you, you have to really go back a long, long time, even before um, 2008. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I started out the book with the topic of money, uh, to understand you know what money okay. is, uh, what it represents, you know, why do we need it, uh, perhaps more importantly, uh, how did money change in the 20th century and the, the definition of money? That's very, very important to understand. And so then we, we talk a little bit about what inflation is, uh, a very little understood topic and term when I wrote the book in 2010, 2011, which was a term called deflation. Um, <laughs> didn't hear much about that topic. I, I predicted in that first book that you would hear a lot more about that topic and you see it used a little bit more now in, 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 oh, yeah. in the financial lexicon. If you go to Google and you do a Google trend search, you'll see that uh, the use of the term deflation was certainly more prevalent in 2008. Then it kind of died off. But then if you notice here within the last year or so, you'll see more search terms uh, where deflation appears. So, uh, again, try to stay a little away from, from the term guilt. There's a lot of parties mm -hmm. that, if you will, participated in the whole progression of events, but at the end of the day, uh, it, you really have to come back to our unit of currency, you know, what we define as money, and investor psychology is 
very, very prevalent in all of this as well. Okay, no, very very true. Now, okay, let's not use the word guilty, or I'll use it, you won't. Uh, but uh, obviously, there were, I think I like your term, who were some of the contributors. So many people I talked to want to pin it, well, it was the banks that caused it, uh, or it was the government, or it was the Federal Reserve, or it was uh, all those greedy homeowners that were using the their home as an ATM. Uh, to me, it sounds like all of them were participants in this, um, ultimately, what became a bubble. Yeah, all of them, absolutely, you, you hit the nail on the head. All of these parties that you mentioned participated in one way, shape, or form. And, you know, an interview I was I was conducting uh, over the weekend, you know, the host and I, we were discussing this topic, and uh, government, politicians certainly came into play. They were well-intentioned because they were simply responding sure. to the wants of, of their voters and what they thought that they wanted. Uh, ultimately, again, I go back to, these things that occurred were possible because of the structure of our money. And if the, if the money was structured a little bit different, um, the, the effect of this bubble, the extent of the bubble, would have been far more muted than it is now. Uh, bubbles are simply part of human existence, part of the investor psychology. They're, they're always going to be present. But the, the extent of this bubble was certainly magnified and amplified by the way our money is structured today. Okay, so people reading it will better understand a lot of those factors. They'll understand kind of the fundamentals behind there, how it all got started years before that. Um, and they won't feel like they were guilty at the end of the book. They they might feel like, okay, yeah, they played a role, uh, but at least you won't use that, that nasty word of guilty. Well, you know, I, I try to also put some responsibility on, on people, on, on individuals, because at, at the end of the day, you know, some of these things that, that occurred uh, during the, the housing crisis with respect to what were known as liars' loans, uh, it, it required two parties to tango, right? I mean, there was a sure. creditor that was that was willing to lend money, but as a borrower, the borrower has to have some responsibility for understanding, uh, you know, their own financial balance sheet. And I, I, I like to relate a story, Ron, to when I bought my first home years ago, and I was sitting there with the bank officer and uh, listing the, the, the amount of assets that I had, my income, et cetera, and the, the banker's response at the end of that was, well, why aren't you buying a bigger house? And <laughs> so that's part of the psychology that was, that was present at the time. It got even significantly more amplified after, after I bought my house. And so at the end of the day, you, you have to have some personal responsibility for understanding what your financial factor of safety is, and I think that, that, that certainly got diluted uh, in, in the housing bubble. Sure, and on top of that, you had appraisers, you had the uh, government forcing them to to make loans to people that weren't necessarily qualified. All you know, on and on and on. So it really is a a, a large tangle. That's why I often joke that you're I'm one of the few you can't blame for that recession uh, as as being guilty. Just didn't live here, didn't own any real estate. So uh, I was I was kind of uh, quite a ways from the uh, from the matting crowd. Now my next question gets a little bit more involved. So let me remind our listeners: you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Now, if you've missed some prior shows or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on www.wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Or if you want, you can follow The Ronald, all one word, on Twitter or Facebook. Now, during the radio show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions. There is a chat window below the radio player. Just scroll down a little bit. 
or you can call in 917-388-4162. It's also shown at the top of the screen. Our topic is Escaping Oz. We're, we're discussing with Jim Mascara, a principal at Sentinel Consulting, and that's N-E-L, Sentinel, which uh, specializes in business restructuring capital acquisition, and author of two books on Escaping Oz, which, of course, we're talking about today. So, Jim, tell us... if. When you started the second book, and what motivated you to do kind of a sequel, and I, I maybe shouldn't call it that, but to some extent using the same name, uh, it is a follow-on to what you had done. Uh, what were some of the motivations, and when was this? Well, you know, as I mentioned, the the first book I released in, in 2010 and 2011, right. and I had some vision as to what would transpire in the economy. What I did mm-hmm. not anticipate, uh, I, not certainly not the extent, was – uh, the degree of um, involvement in the um, in the financial markets that not just the Federal Reserve of the United States, but certainly central banks across the world, uh, mm-hmm. I will be the first to admit I did not anticipate the extent of their involvement. I mean, if you had told me that the Fed balance sheet would going was going to balloon <laughs> four trillion dollars from you know roughly eight hundred billion before the crisis, I, I certainly wouldn't have anticipated something like that. Um, so because of that, uh, there was, I guess, a sense of complacency that fell upon the financial markets, uh, certainly professional investors, sure. uh, certainly individual investors, that probably felt that, okay, uh, the wizards have taken us through this crisis in 2008 and we're past it and we're beyond it. Um, you know, the whole time there were a lot of economic measures that were not responding to what would be considered a, a traditional recovery. Um, you know, one of the things that I mentioned in the book was that, you know, you had a, a smaller percentage of the working age population that was actually working. And there, there's sometimes there's the retort that, well, part of the reason that is is because you have baby boomers retiring. Well, I countered that argument in the book by showing a chart that shows uh, how much greater participation you have from people that are 55 and older uh, in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really have uh, some very polarizing things that were occurring, Just and this is just in the labor market we're talking about now, where sure. a smaller percentage of the population, the adult population, was, was employed. Uh, a larger percentage uh, of the 55 and older population was being employed. And then a contracting percentage of the um, of, of college-age young population was being employed. So that, that kind of told you that there were some other dynamics going on. Um, there were many more people on food stamps than there were at, from the oh, start yeah. of the recovery in, in 2009. So when I when I looked at that and I saw some of the things that were going on in the stock market, it, it, I, I felt at least compelled to to write a subsequent book that addressed some of the things that were going on that again that kind of presented the the, the appearance of recovery, but some of the uh, the fissures, if you will, that that really still uh, underlie the the belly of the economy that I think some people feel it, but they don't understand why it's occurring. Uh, so, again, that was kind of the motivation for the second book. Yeah, and so many people point to, you mentioned on the uh, college students not getting jobs, which uh, clearly is appropriate, and yet people point to the other side of it. They say, well, you know, they have so much uh, debt uh, to pay back, they're just not able to manage. Well, <laughs> step back to say, you know, I think they would be able to pay it off, just like you or I probably did, um, if they have jobs. Um, I started work about a month after I finished college. It might have even been sooner. Uh, and, um, you know, was able to pay that off no problem. I delayed it as much as possible since it was cheap debt. But 
you know, we had no problem paying for it if we had a job. But if you don't have a job, then student loan debt keeps growing. And, that, and that's part of the issue with um, some of the things that I mentioned in the book regarding credit. Uh, cr- credit actually experienced some degree of contraction uh, yes. post 2009, particularly on the on the consumer revolving credit side. Mm-hmm. Uh, mortgage debt is smaller now than it was then. Uh, so when you when you look at some measures of credit, they actually contracted, which was uh, for me that the market had a recognition that, hey, you know what, uh, our, we're, we're becoming a little saturated with credit. It's uh, it's hurting our personal financial balance sheets. We need to pare back, which is, again, just a, a natural, normal reaction to sure. that. However, there was there was one aspect of consumer credit that continued to increase and now it sits uh, somewhere in the $1.2, $1.3 trillion range, and that's what you mentioned, which was student debt. And so – uh, by facilitating yet more credit uh, for students, and now you have the, the the adverse effect of not being able to repay that credit because of a, a lack of job opportunities or a lack of maybe well-paying job opportunities to satisfy some of that debt. You really have a double whammy. Yeah, and you know one of the things you touched on is there was a nice decrease in in that debt, and and I think you're exactly right, especially like credit cards and mortgages and those kinds of things, which uh, was a positive. So it was kind of like the silver lining to every recession is people start waking up and saying, oh, gee, maybe I was overspending. But the part that nobody's been able to answer, at least I haven't found it yet, or I I keep asking, uh, is if there's anything that splits that decrease into how much was written off due to either bankruptcy, foreclosures, of foreclosures, or a major factor in in the um, housing market and the mortgages uh, versus what was really a decrease in the amount of credit I was taking because I don't have a job. I, you know, I can't spend as much, which, you know, is, is the logical thing. But I think so much of it was written off uh, during that process that, uh, you know, that decrease wasn't as much as we would have expected from just good behavior. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that that's part of what, uh, what part of what you said is exactly right. And, and towards the, uh, the latter part of the book, one of the things I mentioned, the, the chapter that I call Planning for the Future, is what I call debt restructure. Mm-hmm. And debt restructure is, is native to what I do in, in, in my Sentinel Consulting business, sure. is again, relating to small to mid-sized businesses. But there is so much debt that exists right now. Some of it is, is what's called funded debt. And let's, so let's just talk about from a government perspective. Some of it's funded debt. Some of it's unfunded debt. The unfunded debt, unfunded liabilities, is multiples of that, of the, our funded liabilities. There's obviously a lot of student debt that exists right now that, uh, unfortunately for some, can't be discharged through bankruptcy action. Correct. Um, Companies themselves, individual corporations in this country, even though there's the notion that they're flush with cash, uh, have taken on a considerable amount of debt because of the low interest rates. Well, you know, corporate debt is not a 30-year mortgage where it has 30 years to mature. Uh, it's, It's often a much, much shorter term. And so the amount of debt that corporations have taken on has swelled quite a bit. So restructuring is something that uh, I I don't see how we're going to get away from that. Uh, There's simply not enough um, value creation or taxation power uh, in place right now to handle some of the things, some of the overhang of debt that exists, uh, not just uh, from from a personal level, uh, but also from a a fiscal and a, a government level as well. 
Okay, uh, so this sounds like you know fa- absolutely fascinating stuff, critical to to understand. Uh, I'm I'm uh, signed up to to get the book already, so uh, hopefully other listeners start to recognize, especially since, and I think they're starting to recognize from the little bit we've talked already. Uh, you explain this stuff using English as opposed to economics ease or legal ease. Uh, so I think it, you know it will help people better understand that. But let me go back to a real easy question, a basic one. Uh, it's been on my mind since we first touched base, and, and kind of like, well, does it does it fit our show, et cetera? It's not really considered an economics textbook per se. Uh, I, I don't think so, at least. And it's clearly, it's got you know, a lot of economic foundation, historical facts. Uh, and the books aren't novels. Uh, how would you describe or classify them? Yeah, I mean, it's really probably somewhat of a hybrid. And, and you mentioned that uh, uh, the discussion so far is, is, is such that it's characterized by speaking in English and, and not economic terms. Um, if, if I could just throw in a little story here, um, sure. a, a little anecdote from from the book. You know, speaking of, uh, uh, of you know be, trying to trying to talk in plain English, you know, there used to be that the um, the chairman of the Federal Reserve uh, would go before Congress and give some pronouncement of you know what they what they thought about the economy and so forth. And you know, Alan Greenspan certainly uh, held. Congress at bay, you know, with, and with rapture, just waiting for him to say, you know, what they thought. And he even admitted in some interviews later that he tried to uh, kind of obfuscate his language with terminology, so no one really understood what he was saying. I mean, he actually admitted that. And if you if you had any any concern about what you were hearing from Alan Greenspan, the the, the anecdote that I put in the book was in um, in another book um, um, called Maestro. Um, that was written by one of the uh, Watergate principals uh, that uncovered that. He said that when Alan Greenspan proposed to his wife, uh, his current wife, who is uh, NBC News correspondent Andrea Mitchell, that she didn't understand his marriage proposal. So, I mean, that tells you something about uh, if somebody's talking to Congress about economic policy, uh, how how is Congress or the – uh, the, the American people or the investment market is going to understand what he's saying when his future wife couldn't un- decipher a marriage proposal. So that you know that that's kind of what you have with with what I'll call one of the wizards, which is a, a central banker making pronouncements about the economy and so forth. So, uh, so the books really are a combination of, of economics, uh, history, you know, what what transpired historically with mm-hmm. money, uh, monetary agreements. Um, Technical analysis. I talk a lot about cycles. Uh, I, I, okay. I think it's very important for people to understand that that there are things that occur in cycles that aren't uh, linear time or what I call chaotic time. And I try to give some examples of you know, of each one of those. Um, human behavior is very very important in, in all of this because uh, humans throughout history, uh, particularly with respect to things that are emotional. I mean, everybody's brain is still wired the same. Uh, you know, you have a, a prefrontal cortex, which allows you to make all of these logical, rational decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the efficient market hypothesis is all postulated on, on people acting rationally. And I even have a picture of Mr. Spock from Star Trek fame in the book, and because that's kind of the presumption of how everyone acts. But the reality is, is that we're individual investors and professional investors, for that matter, are governed by a smaller part of their brain it's called the amygdala, which, uh, again, controls uh, em- emotional content. And so uh, I try to kind of weave all that together to help people understand, uh, you know, that 
what we talked about earlier about the guilty parties, there's really a lot of different components that lead to where you are today. Okay. And, you know, when you talked about um, Greenspan, I, I have always thought he was a, a student of the Alexander Haig. I don't remember Alexander Haig, but he was, he was definitely one that could teach anybody to talk a lot and say nothing. Uh, and and uh, Greenspan, and, and at the end of Greenspan's talks, of course, everybody had a different interpretation of what he really said because nobody really knew. So uh, very, very much so. But while we're on that, you talked about him being kind of one of the wizards. Uh, when I'm reading a book like this, uh, it certainly helps if I have kind of uh, a, a mind's eye of, of who this, uh, you know, we knew in The Wizard of Oz, it was a wizard behind the curtain pushing the buttons and levers. Is it possible to pick a person or a group that we can have in our mind's eye as we're reading the book uh, as to who the wizard is? And, and, and if so, is it now a white-haired lady who, who's kind of built like the original wizard. Yeah, and, and probably for your listeners, since they, they definitely have a financial market orientation, that, that person would, would certainly be in this country, the, the, the head of our central bank, uh, the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it still amazes me, um, and I guess it shouldn't amaze me based on what I was saying earlier about human emotion. Um, there are uh, the financial markets against it, uh, Contemporary financial markets sit around and wait for some announcement. The, the most, the most pressing, I guess, matter on the minds of financial professionals now is what the Federal Reserve is going to do with respect to interest rates. And so there's that you know, kind of that captive audience that's always there waiting to see what the Fed does, and the, the markets react based on what their interpretation is of, of, of Fed policy. Um, the thing that's probably, uh, I think, missing in the whole Federal Reserve wizard analysis is that with respect to the Federal Reserve, the central bank of this country, the reason that institution came about, and there's a whole school of thought, Ron, that that says, uh, that even debates whether you should even have a central bank in a country. But for the sake of argument, let's just say that uh, in 1913 they were created, and they were created for a very specific and valid reason. So that reason has nothing to do with with all of the stuff that you hear about today, which is, um, they're concerned about what the stock market level is. They're concerned about mm-hmm. bond prices. They're concerned about what the jobs report says. I mean, all of these things that you hear about the Fed today is not the reason that ostensibly that they were created over 100 years ago, which was to be a bank of banks to prevent, you know, to to address liquidity problems in times of panic. Um, that's that's not what you hear about the Fed today. And everything else that the Fed is involved in now, I think, is completely extraneous to their original intent. And so as a result of that, they've taken on this whole wizard persona about them, and everybody's just sitting there waiting to see what what they can do to rescue the economy. Okay. And one of the things that I don't know if you're aware of, uh, Jim, and and some of our listeners may have missed it, we recently had – uh, Dr. Robert Johnson on, who wrote Invest with the Fed, again, a very recent book and a lot of research on different investments and how they react in different uh, Fed cycles and uh, fascinating stuff. I, I have not made it through very, you know, it's a lot of detail in that book. It's not a book where you would read it like a, a story form. It's one that you would read through the sections that are relevant today uh, and then go back and use it as, as really kind of a textbook that you would go back and reference. Um, so a really fascinating book. So if you're not familiar with it, Invest with the Fed by uh, Dr. Robert Johnson, well, well, well worth the time uh, to read through that because it really does help connect what the Fed is babbling about uh, in their Fed speak uh, with what it ultimately means to your uh, portfolio, different aspects of your uh, of your investments. So uh, some neat research. Sounds interesting. 
Now, is it necessary for somebody to read the economic fundamentals in the first book in order to get the full benefit of the second book? Well, one of the things I tried to do was was repeat the fundamentals um, because okay. really the second, if, if I had to counsel somebody, I would say you know don't read the first book because the the second book is is like the first book, it's more updated. But I left mm-hmm. a lot of the fundamentals, really all the fundamentals in there, which uh, are really the the first uh, roughly four or five chapters of the book. Um, I think are important to kind of have that foundational understanding, you know, moving forward. So I would say that uh, if you just bought the second book, uh, you would be fine. Okay. So the first book might be more used for really trying to understand uh, some of those, as I called them, guilty parties and, and understanding some of the uh, the money impacts. So you're going to cover some of that in the second book. So the second book is most important, but if somebody really wants to go back and, and uh, uh, you know, think about what happened and what could have been done differently, then that first book would be well worth a read. Yeah, and, and one of the things I did in the first book that I, I, I shied away from in the second book was I, I, I tried to talk about some individual investor profiles and mm-hmm. one of the reasons I shied away from that in the second book is because I was probably inadvertently trying to provide a blueprint for, uh, let's say, all investors. And I, and I classified right. investors into three different types. Um, but really, in the second book, I, I make mo- notion of the fact that it's important for people to work with their financial advisors on using maybe the knowledge that they gain in the book to have uh, intelligent discussions with their advisors, perhaps even their advisors who want to read the book, and, and really structure portfolios accordingly, because I, I think that that blueprint that I had in the first book uh, was probably too all-encompassing for everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay, understand. Uh, so we'll focus a little bit more on the newest book. Uh, one of the aspects of your books that is praised most often is what I touched on earlier. You explain the fundamentals, the economic fundamentals, using some easy-to-understand language. Share with us several examples of some of those economic fundamentals you cover in the book and uh, give the uh, reader uh, enough information to follow your explanations and logic later in the book. So give us kind of some examples of where, uh, whether it's talking about about uh, money or other factors where uh, you you explain things that most people would be confused by. Well, so yeah, so let's let's hit on the topic of money. Uh, one of the okay. things I talked about in the book is, is is really the definition of money and how it's just changed in a short period of time. So um, I happen to have in my possession uh, when I wrote the first and second book uh, a Webster's Dictionary from 1968. So you know you're going back okay. you know roughly 50 years. And if you look at the Webster's Dictionary from 1968, it says that money is and I quote, standard pieces of gold, silver, copper, nickel, etc., stamped by government authority and used as a medium of exchange and a measure of value. And so I thought, okay, so let's put that in there so people have a baseline of, of what money was mm-hmm. defined in 1968. And so then I pulled up an online Webster's Dictionary in, in 2010, 2011, and I thought, okay, let me, let's see what Webster says now is money. And mm-hmm. money now, then was defined, or I should say now, and I quote, something generally accepted as a medium of exchange, a measure of value, or a means of payment. So if you just look at those two definitions, uh, there's been a subtraction of, of, um, of something in the second definition that was there in the first, first definition. <laughs> and that's something, you know, referred to, uh, in, in this particular case, metals, whether they were gold, silver, copper, nickel, etc. Sure. And so, so that tells you that money is different in that regard. Um, Money also had a very, very important definition, Ron, uh, somewhere around the time frame of 1945. So let's set the stage. So 1945, uh, you've uh, you've completed World War II. uh, The Allied powers Mm -hmm. are victorious. 
and now there needs to be uh, some sort of a, a international monetary agreement that defines uh, money. Um, uh, is certainly very important for for trade agreements. You know, when you have to, some understanding of you know how com- how countries are going to trade, businesses in different countries are going to exchange goods and services. So, uh, in 1945, there was a, a problem. Well. My estimation, the most important monetary agreement of the 20th century, it was called Bretton Woods. And what Bretton right. Woods said was, okay, there is go- there are going to be a few key currencies in the world, and again, these are all going to be from from the victorious powers primarily, but but mm-hmm. but it expanded beyond that. So, and it said that there was going to be an established relationship between the U.S. dollar and the British pound, the U.S. dollar and the German mark. Uh, the Italian lira, etc. So there was a fixed exchange rate there, which was was basically allowed countries to have an understanding of the value of their money. Now, mm-hmm. very important thing. It's not enough just to say that, but the Bretton Woods Agreement also said the U.S. dollar, on the other hand, is going to be uh, related to X amount of gold. And I don't remember what the exact figure was. Sure. So essentially, what that said was currencies are exchangeable for one another, but the, the main currency, the reserve currency, the U.S. dollar, was exchangeable for gold. And so if you think about just that for a second, and and I know some, some listeners would think, well, this person's just a gold bug, and that's why he's saying that. That's not me saying that. That was the uh, right. an international agreement that was uh, agreed to by many, many countries, right, post-World War II, and it made a very s- specific stipulation with respect to the association of the U.S. dollar to a precious metal. Then came 1971, and Richard Nixon, as I mentioned in the book, uh, his most memorable action for me personally had nothing to do with Watergate, but right. it said that uh, he severed that link from the U.S. dollar to gold. So now a country couldn't say, okay, instead of uh, exchanging my uh, my currency for U.S. dollar, I want the gold instead. Well, Richard Nixon says, okay, we're no longer going to do that, and there was a host of reasons why he suggested that. And so from that point forward, then, currencies then began to float uh, through some some exchange rate that's based on uh, things that are occurring in a market. Um, so since that time, you, you've seen probably more monetary instability. You know, you saw periods of uh, extreme mm-hmm. inflation, certainly in the, in the late 70s. A lot of things have happened, and I think it's important for people to understand, you know, if, you, if you're talking about some of the economic fundamentals, just that little, this, this little piece that we've talked about here in the last two or three minutes is probably one of the most important things to understand. No, it's a good point. And some of the uh, folks that I've, uh, I've met over time also differentiating that that 68 uh, definition of money as being the appropriate one, it should not have changed. And that now what, what they were dealing with as the, the, the term money really is currency. And there's a differentiation between the two. Uh, so uh, sometimes that, that differentiation could be a, a useful way to look at is, is people now confuse money and currency. Uh, and they are slightly different things, uh, well, slightly more than slightly, in that uh, one is really just a matter of what you believe. And uh, it's kind of like the uh, Wizard of Oz. If you believe you can go home, you go. Right. That, that, that's exactly right. And and I had I came up with my own definition of money in the book, which was it's, it's a medium of exchange. It's a unit of account, which means it's measurable. It can be divided into smaller or larger units. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a direct store representation of wealth. So the money itself Correct. is not the wealth, but it's a medium that can be used for the exchange of wealth. And and that was, again, certainly present in that 1968 definition. It's really not present today. And people need
need to understand that, that money uh, is also represented by credit, which is a very important part of the book to understand how that comes about. But when you can create credit very easily, and so it, a very, very frictionless process, of, of which we were talking earlier about the Federal Reserve and their balance sheet, that's a completely frictionless process where they can take their balance sheet, which was $800 billion, and in a short amount of time through the purchases of, of, of Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, now all of a sudden it's $4 trillion plus. Well, if you're thinking about this at home, you're saying, okay, well, how did we get from $800 billion to $4 trillion plus? That's $3.2 trillion. Where did that money come from? And that's, that's part of my point is that that's a frictionless process by the Federal Reserve where that money gets created. Uh, and, and, again, once you have the ability to create money, uh, which, again, can then be used to purchase things, right, and it gets injected in the right. economy, right. It, it has a tendency to create uh, destabilizing effects. It has a tendency to um, to misprice, misallocate capital, misprice assets. And, I, and you're really seeing a lot of those after effects now. Yep. In the old days, we used to call it counterfeit. But before we continue, just in case you just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portions on the archive. If you missed prior shows, you can find them in the archive as well, www.wealthdna.us. Today our guest is Jim Mascara, who operates the economic and financial we- uh, website called The Sentinel, S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L, and he wrote two books on Escaping Oz, which is our topic today. Now, if you just tuned in, you'll also want to go back to the beginning of the show soon after we finish. That same link will get you there. Our producers make it easy for you. So, Jim, on the Sentinel, you mentioned several economic laws and investment laws. Are they also covered in the books? Yeah, they are. Um, and probably the most ec- most important of the economic laws, and these are just some things I just came up with mm-hmm. to kind of highlight where people need to focus their attention. Uh, the first one of those is what I'll call uh, economic, law, economic law number one, and that okay. is credit equals confidence. So let, let's talk about that for a second. Sure. Um, if you don't have confidence, you don't have credit. And credit is an interesting word because it's actually derived from the Latin word, and I believe it's pronounced credere, which means to believe. So if you think about uh, uh-huh. other, let's let's get into some etymology here. Uh, to believe, uh, there's another word that sounds very similar to credit, and that's what called credibility, right? So somebody's believable. Good point. Good point. So when when you have all that, uh, when you have the belief, then you have the ability to create credit. Uh, a creditor is willing to, to extend credit to somebody, create a loan. Um, there's, al- there's also another side to that, and that's the borrower. So the borrower has confidence that they can repay. And, again, back to, their, to the personal financial balance sheet, um, if, you, if you're a responsible borrower, uh, you take on the credit that you believe that you can repay. So, uh, so to summarize, a you know, credit transaction requires a lender having a confidence of repayment you know, with interest from the debtor. Um, when you have manifestations of extreme confidence, then what you have is what's called excessive <laughs> credit creation. And one of the, the the metaphor that I use for that in the book is is one of those big uh, blimps, those airships that, that circulate mm-hmm. at sporting events. And I said that if you want to compare the, the Great Depression bubble, that's maybe a beach ball, and the, the current credit bubble is the size of one of those airships. So you have you know magnitude, uh, many magnitudes of scale larger now in the in the credit that's been created. So. All of that means that there's just a whole lot of confidence that, that existed, and that confidence is, is manifested right now as credit. 
Okay, and and, and very, very logical. Uh, let's share one more of the economic laws for us. Well, deflation is a, is a term that we talked about earlier. Yep. Uh, you, you've seen more of it. Uh, it's, a, it's a really an under, it's a really misunderstood term. Um, when people think of deflation, they think of, of, of declining prices. But deflation right. by itself is a, is a contraction of the outstanding amount of money and or credit. Um, economic mm-hmm. law number two in my book says deflation is a lack of confidence. So if credit equals confidence, uh, and credit is, is an expansion of the amount of money and credit that's in circulation, deflation is really the opposite of that, and it's a contraction. So what we talked about earlier was that in 2008, 2009, there was a recognition on the part of individuals in the market that, okay, we got out of balance, so I, we need to kind of contract credit. So you see uh, mortgage credit is smaller now than it was back then, uh, revolving credit is a little bit smaller, is kind of leveled out. So that, those are two deflationary events that occurred there. Uh, why? Because it, it contracted the amount of credit that there it was outstanding. And that tells you that there was less confidence. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Ron, about you know banks writing things off. Well, mm-hmm. when a bank writes something off, what does that tell you? That they don't have confidence that they're going to uh, get repaid. And right. rather than creating the, 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 the fantasy of, of an asset on, on, the, on a bank balance sheet, we're going to get rid of that because it really doesn't exist. Uh, regulators obviously are coming into play as well and, 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 uh, and directing you know, what, how things need to look on balance sheets. So economic law number two, deflation is a lack of confidence. Um, and, again, if you think about that as being the, the opposite of, of economic law number one, which is credit mm-hmm. equals confidence. Okay, fair point. And also, so often we think of deflation, well, that's when you know, prices are going down, therefore people want to postpone their purchases. Well, uh, what it doesn't cover, which I think you're touching on, is what triggered that, that deflation as opposed to once we're in it, what happens. So, uh, the, you know, the catch-22. So, well, well said. All right, you also touch on a couple investment laws. Give us one of those. Yeah, and having a little bit of a background after I got out of college, uh, even though I, I, I got my engineering degree, I, I, I still mm-hmm. wanted to dabble in things related to the money and finance. I'm, one of my one of my favorite uh, classes in college was actually money and banking. But so I got into understanding uh, the futures markets and the commodity markets and started doing some trading. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was very very important uh, was uh, to have a plan for taking profits. And so that's what my investment law number one is. Uh, I remember talking to people uh, where I used to work in the in the late 1990s, uh, they were sitting on some profits in the stock market. Maybe a lot of them were sitting on profits in dot-com stocks. Um, and one of the questions I would always ask them was, okay, you're sitting on some profit right now. You understand that that's paper profit. You haven't cashed that in. What What's going to cause you to take a profit uh, in the this, this equity that you own? And most of the time, actually probably darn near all the time, I got a blank stare. And so really, really important for uh, any individual investor, uh, investment advisor, professional, to have an understanding of when to take profits. Um, as a commodity trader, it's a little different because things happen much more quickly. Sure. You, you, have, to, you have to liquidate positions just due to the expiration of the contract. You know, there could be margin calls associated with it and so forth. As an individual investor, when you own stocks or bonds and so forth, you don't necessarily have that same time uh, constraint. And so, and I think that's probably part of the reason why people don't uh, just natively or organically think about, oh, I'm sitting on some profit right now. What would cause me to take that profit? So that's investment law number one. 
Okay. Yeah, one of our uh, uh, past guests has been on the show a couple times. I see him regularly, and he uses the phrase greed. That's why we don't take profits. But I will admit, I've never lost money by taking profits. So uh, I, I you know, totally, totally support that concept, uh, let's say 110%. Now, we obviously can't cover all the aspects in one show. Would you share what you would view as the greatest problem facing the U.S. and the world economy today? Yeah, and it's a four-letter word. Uh, it's pronounced okay. uh, debt. <laughs> Um, okay. D-E-B-T. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we talked earlier, uh, we've talked actually throughout the show about credit, money, et cetera, how it gets created. Um, the other side of credit is a debt. So somebody's credit is somebody else's debt. Um, we have, uh, in this country anyway, and then certainly in other countries, we've created these covenants uh, with the citizenry um, that we're going to take care of them in old age, yeah. um, take care of them when they're ill, uh, we're going to provide uh, supplementary uh, health insurance. So there, there's a lot of obligations that are there, and that's at the federal level. But, you know, then at the state level we have a lot of covenants that have been created there as well with state employees saying that, okay, you're going to have a defined salary even after you retire. And, again, I'm not decrying any of those structures. I'm just telling I'm just trying to tell um, the listeners what exists today. However, uh, you do not have the the reserves. You don't have the the, the means to create value uh, in the economy or the taxation power to make uh, whole on all of those covenants. And so, uh, one of the things that that at least states are recognizing right now, and I'll just pick on the state of Illinois because it's adjacent to my state in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, they have significant uh, pension fund liabilities, um, and we won't go into some of the, the reasons they got into that, but. <laughs> The, the the state government of Illinois uh, has recently um, been handed a, a court ruling which says that you really can't monkey with those pension obligations because they are contracts. And so if you think about that for a second, it's not an optional thing. It was, it was a covenant, as I mentioned, but the courts themselves have said, um, well, this is a contract. And so if you, if, you, if you don't honor this, you're basically in breach of contract. So now the state of Illinois is going to have to go back to the drawing board. And they're not unique, by the way. This exists in many other states as well. Uh, Pensions are greatly underfunded, which is even more scary, Ron, if you think about it. Since 2009, you've had a pretty buoyant uh, stock and bond market, and that's where a lot of the pension funds are going to have their money invested. So if you Mm -hmm. you consider that you've had an incredible stock market run since March of 2009, a pretty damn good bond market run since that time as well, and yet you still have – uh, public pensions that are greatly underfunded. You even have pr- a lot of private pensions that are still greatly underfunded. That is a massive, massive amount of debt. I mean, it's a bomb, right, that would be set to explode at some point in the future, and there's there's no real way to solve that problem. And so I mentioned the term debt restructure earlier. That's something that's probably going to have to come uh, to a theater near you. Boy, a topic I'd love to do uh, sometime. Well, maybe we have a debate on a couple of different topics, maybe a couple of uh, of guests and, and uh, you know, ways to resolve some of this. But I also see the flip side of that, which is the moral hazard that's been created on the consumer side that says, yes, you signed a contract, and yes, you're obligated to pay this debt, but don't worry, the government will pay it for you, and uh, it will forgive you. So I see that uh, a lot of people are probably not taking their debts seriously. Uh, you know, corporations, governments, and those kinds of things might try to take it more seriously, but I have a feeling that moral hazard is likely to spread. So uh, in, very, very interesting topic and, and, and well said. Uh, now, you're a fan of letting the market determine the fate of the economy. Tell us why. 
Well, it's interesting. Um, I actually have a, an economic law number four, and economic law number four says markets allow people to satisfy themselves by satisfying others. So if, if I'm going to create mm-hmm. a product or a service, uh, I mean, I'm in it to make money for myself. But the only way that I'm going to make money for myself is to satisfy someone else's need in that market. Um, the market is uh, an incredible network uh, that's, uh, that has this innate intelligence. It's vastly interconnected, uh, a lot of participants. And so if, if you think about that, each one of those individuals has an understanding of their product or service, you know, how they're going to sell it, how they're going to market it, how they're going to service it, um, how they're going to uh, want repeat customers, if that's the nature of their business. Consumers also have all this information as well. So that's a, that, that's a network. And, and today, because of the advent of, of the Internet and other forms of communication, that network has a lot of information uh, associated with it. What, what the problem that you have is, is that you've had external influences now, whether that is government or, or, or central banking, i.e. the wizards, um, that act like they have some innate knowledge of, of, of that market when they really don't. And this, and this all goes back to you know, a broader uh, brush, if you will, of, of you consider economic planning. In this country, we used to make fun of socialist economies because they would plan you know, how many bars of soap mm-hmm. were going to get produced, how many pairs of jeans, etc. We're not doing that, but we are uh, instituting our own different form of economic planning by virtue of actions that get taken uh, by government and central banks, uh, etc. And so when that happens, they're, they're really creating some distortions, uh, some misallocations of capital, um, misprice, mispricings that occur because of their intervention. And so th- rather than letting the market kind of decide on how everything needs to, to unravel or to basically refresh itself, you have these interventions which are really delaying that process. Okay. And I would put regulations as a part of that or maybe the main implementer or tool that they use in, in doing that. Totally agree with you. And, and uh, you know, to me, one of the things I was going to jokingly say that, you know, one of the things that gets people to stop using their logical brain and moving to the uh, to the emotional side on that uh, market thing is, is TV. And if you turn the TV off, the market would be more efficient. But let me, let me use that as a segue to, uh, you know, we've got our radio show, which is trying to help people learn the investment fundamentals, you know, learn ways to increase their wealth. But there are a lot of webinars, seminars, classes available on personal finance. Are there some that you would find even misleading or even dangerous? You know, I haven't really done a lot of research and, and noted that any that were you know, particularly misleading or dangerous. I mean, there many of them are going to operate under the same principles. Um, and, again, it's it, it, if you look at things from a cyclical perspective, and I don't think most people really do, uh, I would say that perhaps the information that they're getting on the webinars and seminars are probably all good, but the issue is the timing of that information. So it would be like, you know, you and I are going to walk up to see um, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks play a baseball game. We think it's the first inning, but when we walk in, we realize that the scoreboard says it's the eighth inning, which means the game's almost over. So our, our, gotcha. our new game is going to start the next day. So that's really important to understand, and, and I, I think that um, because of the effect of the wizards and, again, some of these economic changes that have occurred, you know, changes in of what money means, we're, we're probably at a different point in the ballgame, but people don't understand that. 
Okay, and also uh, to to some extent, they're going to tout the uh, great returns that something had, and usually the best, the worst time to invest something that's just gone up 100 uh, percent is at that point. So uh, sometimes it's 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 a combination. So timing is is really that uh, thing that you got to be real careful of. If something's done extremely well for the last few years, there's a good chance it won't continue. Yeah, and and that's one thing that's very very difficult for individual investors is timing. Yeah, well said. Let's remind our listeners how they'd contact you and learn more about Escaping Oz, the Sentinel, and, of course, about you. What are some of the best websites? Well, the the, the primary website for my business, which is called Sentinel Consulting, it's uh, sentinelconsulting.biz, S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L, consulting.biz. Again, that's uh, focused on small business uh, capital acquisition uh, when they can't acquire capital through conventional means and, and debt restructure. My book, Ron, is at escapingoz.com, E-S. C-A-P-I-N-G-O-Z dot com. And the, uh, the Sentinel, uh, the Sentinel.biz is where you can find a lot of economic and financial information. And that is the Sentinel, Sentinel.biz, correct? Okay. All right. Now, we've covered a lot of topics, Jim, uh, various aspects of your book. We couldn't cover all of them. But are there some key ones you'd like to add or emphasize? Yeah, we didn't talk too much about this, but uh, uh, everything that, that really occurs in our economy and, and has occurred to this point and has, has caused some of our problems is really based on the, an understanding of uh, investor psychology, you know, why investors do what they do. Um, they're really not rational beings with respect to investment, and then, and then just understanding human behavior. Okay, glad you mentioned that because our last two shows we talked about that a little bit. A lot of our uh, we got some very positive feedback. Uh, the most recent show was Rich Habits with Thomas Corley, and uh, just before that was Investor Behavior with uh, Professor Victor Ricciardi. Uh, fascinating stuff. Took looked at from totally two different angles, but some uh, some great stuff. So uh, you know, thanks for uh, for plugging our last two shows as well. But you're you're absolutely right. That is an important point, and it gets back to what I you know I was concerned about is where TV influences people too much. It gets them to, to get what they want rather than what they need and focusing on the stuff that somebody wants to market versus what you need. Yes, very much so. Appreciate having you. And, and like I said, I, I've kind of started thinking about some idea of maybe getting you on with uh, with one of our two, uh, uh, you know, our kind of economics uh, gurus and, and forecasters and talking about some of these topics in a little bit more detail. I think our, our, our guests would enjoy that. Big, big change from what we normally do. But uh, that is something I'd love to do, and hopefully you'd be willing. Yeah, Ron, this has been a, a very good uh, hour for me, and, yeah, I would definitely entertain uh, being on your show again. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, Jim. All right. Thanks a lot, Ron. Well, if I would have promised in the show announcement our guest would explain the fundamentals of economics in easy-to-understand language, you might have rolled your eyes and decided to not even listen to this show. And I suspect you would now be regretting it. And if I told you our guest would have many of the same credentials as I do, you might have wondered, just as I did, whether I would be interviewing myself and asking myself questions during the show. But that wasn't the case. When I do a show by myself during the preparation, I have to organize my thoughts in some logical sequence, just like thinking through some of the key questions I want to ask our guest. But the big drawback of my doing a solo show is I don't learn anything new. Hopefully you do. I certainly found this hour very enlightening took, and look forward to uh, reading the rest of Jim uh, Mascare's most recent book, Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. And as he said, unless you want to go back to the history of the uh, Great Recession and what caused it, that might be the uh, the first book to read is, is Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis. Now, I sure hope you gain some new knowledge and enticed to read his book or books. I now uh, recognize that 
uh, some of the suggestions uh, about the future he's covering may not play exactly the way he sees it today, but I'm sure some of our listeners will have opposing points of view. And actually, by the way, that's very positive. Go ahead and read the stuff. Have opposing points of view. Because you see, if both of you think exactly the same, then one of you isn't adding value. And certainly when it comes to economics and politics, diverse opinions are rampant. You see, even the stock, bond, commodity, and real estate markets are totally dependent on two investors having opposing points of view. So we can't agree on everything. See, if we felt that a particular asset, we all felt that a particular asset was going up in price, we couldn't buy it since no one would be willing to sell it. So that diverse opinion, the opposing points of view, is absolutely critical. And that's how you really learn this stuff, by listening to the other side. So often on the show, I remind our listeners that reading books on the many topics we cover is a far better way to learn and grow than to sit around and watch TV. I'm not saying there aren't some useful television shows, but there are, I would say, few, and they're pretty far between. Now, on our last show, we talked, as I just mentioned, uh, with uh, Thomas Corley on rich habits. There were a number of fascinating statistics he mentioned, and again, talking about how the brain works. Uh, one that really stood out for me is the fact that we can continue to expand our IQ until the age of 80. And yet, so many people I've known in their retirement years make statements like, I'm old, too old to learn that stuff, especially when it comes to investing and managing their portfolio. So I certainly hope you enjoyed and saw value in the two quotes I shared at the beginning of the show as well. The first one I'll repeat is, a baby has brains, but it doesn't know much. Experience is the only thing that brings knowledge. And the longer you're on this earth, the more experience you're sure to get. And as I mentioned, that quote is from the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum. The second quote, economics is everywhere. And understanding economics can help you make better decisions and lead a happier life. This quote is from Tyler Cowen, C-O-W-E-N. And so hopefully those are a little bit of motivation to go back and read the book we just discussed. Now, regular listeners know that our objective on the Wealth DNA Radio Show is to share the fundamentals of investing, provide some great ideas for building your wealth, and help you better understand topics like economics for you to gain experience without the pain of learning things the hard way. And our mission is to help you and one million other people become millionaires despite choppy economic waters. If you missed part of today's show, the link in the announcement will take you to the archive version. And of course, you'll also find the full list of past shows there. And that archive is on wealthdna.us. I'd like to thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area, for helping us put together this show. Incidentally, they're actively searching for additional houses in the Phoenix area, often paying a premium. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the fourth Monday of May. That's Monday, May 25th at uh, 9 a.m. Arizona, same place, same time. We'll be, you'll be getting an update, and I'll be getting it along with you, so I guess we'll be getting an update on the state of the housing market with a ter- returning guest, Michael Orr. Now, you can be certain the lines will be busy that day since hundreds of real estate investors and thousands of realtors rely on him for the latest information. So make sure you connect a few minutes early so you don't have trouble connecting. We always have the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows. If you have comments or questions, you haven't received my emails reminding you of the show, send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us, or follow The Ronald, all one word, on Facebook or Twitter. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing and escaping Oz. you 
You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.